0: All right, well, I wonder this morning, what is the greatest source of stress in your own life, right? The single greatest source of stress in your life, where if you could just remove this one burden, if this one issue in your life, right, if that could be relieved, your life would be so much better, now, according to a recent national survey, it ranked just those things, sort of the greatest stresses that we face in life. And, and maybe is no surprise, number five on that list is health, right the challenges that come with disease or with substance abuse, poor health that affects the quality of life, etc. Number four, well, that came in as family, stresses that come with in-laws, with children, with caring for aging parents. Number three was work. So, challenges with employers, coworkers, the workplace environment, and so on. Number two was actually the stress, and this one's been rising in in recent years the stress of politics, which perhaps isn't exactly surprising given our increasing polarization, right? The partisanship of our age. We got elections now, 2024 elections right around the corner, which leaves number one. And can you guess what that is? The greatest source of stress and at least Americans' lives? Well, it's money. Number one is money. It is the single greatest source of stress, especially not having enough money. And perhaps that's not surprising, right, given inflation, rising costs at the pump, at the grocery store, right, even your electric bill. You know, so credit card debt has now reached about a trillion dollars, largest ever. Student loan debt, I read, is at $1.7 trillion, also the largest ever. And as I say that, some of you right now are probably stressing out, right? You're feeling your own heart race and, and your blood pressure begin to rise, not to mention friends' taxes due on Tuesday, don't forget. The calculus we make is that if we just had more, well, of course, that would solve our problems. If I just had more money, I could get out from under my debts. I could live more independently. I could live more securely. I could live more freely. I, of course, could also live more comfortably. The assumption we make is that money solves problems. And thus more money will therefore make us happier. But friends, what if our assumptions are all wrong? What if money actually creates problems? Problems that perhaps we don't see or even perceive. What if money... Instead of, in fact, improving our own lives, could actually ruin our lives. You know, we think so much of life could be improved if I just, to put it bluntly, if, right, if we were rich. But, friends, does the Bible agree with that assessment? Friends, what does the Bible have to say about being rich? And does it share our same assumptions? Right And for that, I want to invite you to turn this morning back with me to the book of James. We've been in this book for a number of weeks now. We're going to be in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of those seatback Bibles. They're red. You can find our text on page 1013, page 1013. And we're coming here towards the end of the letter. And last week, James warned us of a a kind of proud self-reliance. That doesn't factor God into our lives. And this morning, he's going to warn us of a kind of proud self-indulgence. That also fails to factor God into life. So look down with me at James chapter 5. Follow along as I read. James writes, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter you have condemned and murdered the righteous person he does not resist you well friends we've come to the harshest rhetoric right, the most caustic language and some of the most evocative language in the entire book of James, right, weeping and wailing, flesh eaten like fire, hearts fattened for the day of slaughter. You know, many people today lament hellfire and brimstone preachers, right, what do they do with James? I mean, he's not mincing any words. And if we're going to make sense of this text, we'll be helped by understanding exactly Who James is addressing. And now because chapter 5 verse 1 starts just like chapter 4 verse 13. With that expression, come now. You know, James is grabbing their attention. Listen up. Because it starts in a similar way. And because both address similar topics of health and rather of profit and wealth. And because James was addressing Christians back in James 4, 13-17, therefore it's reasonable to assume that James is actually addressing here Christians, rich Christians, and their congregations. But friends, on the other hand, when James is referring to God's own people, he regularly uses throughout the letter that term brothers or beloved brothers. But friends, we don't find that here. And those words for weep and howl as James leads out, those words are regularly used by the Old Testament prophets. And when they, they're used when, when they're prophesying against the pagan nations, right? When they're speaking against them, not against God's covenant people. And unlike chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, there's no call to repentance here. There is just the promise of certain judgment and we know, back from chapter 2, verse 6, if you remember, that there were rich, and the rich were the ones who, James said what, who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So I think it's more likely that James here is addressing, addressing non-Christian rich, the, the kind of people who, who aren't part of the community, but occasionally, as we saw back in chapter 2, will sometimes show up. And the, the people who were poor were tempted to show partiality, right? Favoritism toward them. So these were the wealthy landowners and these guys are the ones who had the judges in their back pockets. And they would use the courts to, to strip the poor of their land, only to hire them back as kind of sharecroppers. The same ones who with apparent impunity can, can oppress the poor by withholding wages, can even condemn them, maybe execute even them, without even raising a fuss about it. To those whose lives are marked by such luxury and self-indulgence, James offers this simple warning, living for money leads to everlasting misery. So if you want a summary sentence, I think for James 5, 1 to 6, there it is. Living for money leads to everlasting misery. And I think as a part of that, what James is going to do is draw sort of two important lessons for us. And those lessons will just serve as our two points. First, the rich will be condemned. And second, the righteous will be comforted. So the rich will be condemned first. Second, the righteous will be comforted. And my prayer is that we will both be warned and encouraged by these verses. Warned in the ways that we are tempted to approach wealth just like the world. But also encouraged That there is a judge in the heavens, and he cannot be bribed or bought off, and he will render justice for his oppressed people. So, just as a heads up, the first point, right, it captures, I think, the central point of the text and and a lot of what James is discussing. So, the first point, again, a good bit longer than the second point, just so you know and you don't fear. All right, so lesson one the rich will be condemned. The rich will be condemned. In verse one, he says they're to what the rich—they're to weep and howl. That word for howl is what we call in onomatopoeia. If you know that that expression, right, where the word phonetically sounds like the thing itself. So the word hiccup is a good example, right? Hiccup—it sounds like the thing itself. Or boom, or purr, or roar, right? All the same. Well, this word for howl in Greek. It sounds like howling. And that adds just this note of desperation and despair that leads out in chapter 5. And this kind of weeping and wailing and howling, friends, that's not what we would expect. For in this life, right, it's the poor that are doing most of the weeping and the wailing. The rich are usually the ones who are sitting back comfortably in luxury. They're laughing and celebrating and enjoying all of their wealth. And why does James say they are to weep and howl? Well, he says because of the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, notice it's in the future tense, right? The miseries that will come. They're not here now, but James says they are coming, right? He's helping us recognize that things are often not as they seem to us, right? In our economy, the rich are the winners and the poor are the losers, right he with the most toys wins right that kind of idea but in god's economy it's often the very opposite and in verses 2 to 6 james explains why these miseries are coming and in doing this he's not directly again addressing the rich he's writing to these christians in churches and the letter is being circulated amongst those churches and again while some of the rich occasionally gather with them He's not directing his comments, especially and primarily at them. They're directed there to the poor who are being oppressed. And James, I think what he's doing is he's inviting them to listen in. He wants them to overhear what God will one day say to them. So I remember a time when I was younger and my uh, older stepbrother had been bullying me. And I happened to walk down the hallway and I overheard my mom defending me and telling my older brother he can't continue to bully me. And I remember overhearing that conversation and remembering how comforted I was to know that there was one who would defend me. Like in much the same way, James is inviting them to listen in, to overhear what God will one day say to their oppressors. And so he wants them to be warned Right? He's, he offers this as a warning, lest they become envious, envious of the rich. And yet, he also means it as an encouragement, lest they become hopeless. So it as a warning not to become envious, as an encouragement, they would not become hopeless. And critically, the issue James is addressing is not wealth per se. So it would be wrong to read this text in a Marxist fashion, right, that we have here. Here James is, right? He can just telegraph Marx, late 19th century, proletariat rising up against the bourgeoisie, right, that whole bit. Well, this isn't about the abolition of private property. It's not about class warfare. It's not even fundamentally about haves and have-nots or about tax policy or about income redistribution. That's not James's point. It's not even, again, finally about wealth itself. It's rather what is done and what is not done with that wealth. James, will see, isn't attacking wealth, but the sinful use of wealth. And he highlights four temptations in particular. He's going to highlight the temptation to excess in verses 2 and 3, to extortion in chapter 4, to extravagance in chapter 5, and then even execution in chapter 6. And so for you careful note-takers, yes, right there, 4 subpoints to point 1. All right? This sinful temptation to excess, extortion, extravagance, and execution. So first, what does he say? This temptation to excess, verse 2. He says, Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. The picture there is just one of rank excess of lavish possessions that have been left to rot, of expensive jewelry, right, that's been gathered and yet sits and starts to tarnish and corrode. And all that it seems is just amassed for its own sake. The owner, it seems, was more interested in acquiring all these things than in using them, Indeed, he, he didn't seem to be able to use it all, kind of like the parable that Jesus gives of the man whose barns become full. And so what does he do? He just builds bigger barns. He can't use it all, but he's, he wants it all. He needs to have it all. And yet this week, friends, we actually got a real-life example. I saw a story on Friday, a news hit, of one of the greatest barn finds ever. So I'm not one of those people who goes out to sort of antiquing or going to look at at garage sales and the rest but people who do that right they dream of coming across that once in a lifetime find that hidden jewel that no one knew was there and it's for them right well this came across uh, this happened this last week where uh, the dream hit and only this time it wasn't just you know some tiny little painting by a second-rate artist or something it was over 230 classic cars Priceless cars, one-of-a-kind cars that have been hidden away in Holland for decades. We're talking Ferraris and Aston Martins and Mercedes and cars I'd never heard of before, like a Lancia B4 Spider America. Never heard of it, but apparently the last one went for over a million dollars. And apparently this Dutch car collector secretly stored his ever-expanding hoard in different locations, in two different warehouses, even, get this, in a church. I don't know what was happening in that church. I guess not services. Even in a church, right, away from the prying eyes of the curious, away from any tempting auto-enthusiasts who might want to steal them. And friends, as that man aged... Right? So did those cars, slowly rotting and rusting away, and dementia hit, and it wasn't until this past week, or at least recently, the executor, uh, executors of his estate, the executors looked and they're like, what? what's the mention of these random addresses in this warehouse? They couldn't make sense of it, no one knew, and then someone showed up, and they discovered in those three locations, 230 of these classic cars. Collector didn't use them, collector didn't drive them, he just amassed them because he had to have them. But friends, the reformer John Calvin reminds us, he says, God has not appointed gold for rust, nor garments for moths, but on the contrary, he has designed them as aids and as helps to human life. Right, Calvin's reminding us that our wealth is not meant to be hoarded, our wealth is actually meant to help others. Wealth is to be used, not just accrued. And friends, I think that's a good warning for us, isn't it? We live in a society where we're accumulation and we're amassing money and we're amassing possessions, right? All that's commended. In the words of the famous billionaire and media mogul Ted Turner, life is a game, and money is how we keep score. And that's how many of us think. But Jesus would warn us of this very mentality. Matthew six nineteen. Jesus would say, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where right, moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. It's likely James had that very teaching of of his brother Jesus in mind. And while we may not think we're rich as we sit here this morning, compared to the average human being on the globe, friends, we are very rich. And when you compare us and what we have today to what generations before had, we are exceedingly rich. We have massive homes by historic standards. I think I read... Like 40 years ago, the average new home was like 1,900, 1,700 square feet. Now I think it's over 3,000 square feet. Right? Homes here have walk-in closets. So this was fascinating for me. When we lived in Washington, D.C., we lived in a home built in the late 1870s, early 1880s. There were no closets. It was just assumed that everything you had could fit in a trunk or could fit in a bureau. None of the rooms had closets, not even the master, if you will, bedroom. And then we come down here and we're looking at homes, and Aaron and I are like, What that's a closet? Like our entire master bedroom in D.C. could fit in there. And indeed, in our first home, you know what was in our closet? My study. It was big enough I could put all my clothes and have my study in the closet. Then there are cars, right? Motorcycles. I know, I love those boats garages and attics that are just overflowing with stuff we have bikes and then of course we've got bikes but then we need racks for our bikes and we'll have multiple tvs and then we have exotic vacations that we would like to take and we've got mowers because we've got big yards and then we've got to have weeders and trailers and got kayaks and canoes to hit the river all of these things and what was unthinkable to people a hundred years ago now to us is just the norm And James's point is not that wealth is evil or that we shouldn't save for retirement or that we should shun the good things that God gives. He is saying we shouldn't simply amass them and we certainly shouldn't put our trust in them. Hoarding, he says, is foolish for our things... Just like our own bodies and lives, as he reminded us last week, right? They're fleeting. They could be taken from us at any moment. Therefore, don't hoard them, but think of how you could use them to be of help to others. But second, he notices that that second sinful temptation toward extortion, verse 4, toward extortion. Verse 4, behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back, are crying out against you. All right, so clearly many of the rich he's addressing here are landowners and they're exploiting those who are working their land. They're holding back wages, which was forbidden in the Old Testament, Leviticus nineteen thirteen. Do not defraud your neighbor or rob him. Do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. Now why not just even overnight? Well, because to do that would be life-threatening. Because this is a world where there's no credit, there are no banks, and if you lived on a subsistence wage, you lived from day to day. You literally needed that daily wage to pay for your daily bread. So to not be paid was likely not to eat, right? That's a disaster. But for the rich to forget to pay a few workers, that's just one small detail. That easily can be forgotten, and without legal recourse, who's going to stop them? Now, if you're an employer uh, here this morning, you know, you employ lots of people, maybe you manage people and, and have a say in sort of employment practices, it'd be a good question to ask, are you following through on your own commitments? Right, am I delivering, are we as an organization delivering to our employees what we promised? I'm not just talking about pay and benefits and making sure payroll hits and hits people's accounts. What about hours? What about expectations? Think about even what you pay your people. The wealth disparity between the rich and the poor in James Day, that was a huge disparity. Well, friends, ours today is growing larger. Now, Many of you will know, given my economics background, I am admittedly a free market capitalist, right? I am not a communist, not in the slightest sense of the word. We tried that in the 20th century. It worked out horribly, violently. But you'll also know that no system is perfect. And in 1965, CEOs made 20 times more than the average worker. So 1965, they made 20 times more than the average worker. By 1989, it had grown to 60 times more than the average worker. And by 2021, it had ballooned to 400 times more than the average worker. Which just begs the question, are CEOs today 20 times more valuable than CEOs back in 1965? Or maybe to flip the question around, is the average employee that much less valuable to the organization than they were in 1965 friends such concentrations of wealth amongst a narrow few that is generally not healthy for societies so if you're an employer right or if you're on a board of an organization or a company if you're involved in hiring decisions just are your policies honest is your pay structure, is it reasonable, is it defensible? And I don't mean in comparison to others, but I mean in comparison to God and what he would expect. Is your system set up in order to prey upon the weakest and the most vulnerable? Right? Just because you can get away with paying them less, maybe they live in a third world country, or maybe there's high school employees. Just because you can get away with paying them less, should you? Is your compensation system, is it all tied to inflation? Or have those who work for you taken a significant hit in real wages in the past few years? Or it all questions, I think, by implication we could ask. But third, he highlights their extravagance, verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Now again, this doesn't mean it is wrong to use the good gifts that God gives us. Go read Second Timothy 4, 1 to 5, and that reminds us that we can all enjoy a meal at the Atlas Room to the glory of God. Right? If your credit card is a high enough limit, you can go eat there and enjoy it to the glory of God. That's not wrong. It's not wrong. But James is addressing the kind of sinful and selfish attitudes that put ourselves and our needs and our wants at the center. So just ask yourself, if you were to receive a raise, or when you do, or if you happen to get bonuses from your employer, do you first think, how could I spend, how much is it? Okay, it's an extra... 400 a month. How can I spend that 400? What have I been wanting to get that I haven't been able to get? What have I been holding back? What's my list? How can I work through my list? What could I do? Or what trip could we take? Questions like that. What thing might I buy? What might I upgrade? Again, that question's not necessarily wrong, but it does and it should beg the question why should my standard of living change? Just because my income changes. We all assume for income changes, our standard of living should go up. Why is that? Do we need more? Do we have to have more all of a sudden just because we receive more? Have our needs truly changed? Or instead, when our income rises and our expenses correspondingly rise, is there something of our selfish desires that are built into that? Wealth is to be used in the service of others. So if your wealth has grown, are you using it simply and primarily in the service of self, or are you using it in the service of others? Do you share what you have, whether or not it is money, or things, or houses, or objects, or whatever it might be? Do you share those things? Do you, do you let others use them? Do you perhaps give it away freely? How do investments into God's kingdom into his church, how do investments like that factor into your decision-making? Have you stopped to ask yourself, when will I have too much? We don't ask that question, do we? We should ask that question. When will I have too much? Or friend, is that just not a category you've ever had in your mind? You have that fourth Sinful temptation is to execution, verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. James saves his strongest rebuke for the end. And while it's possibly speaking metaphorically or maybe just using some hyperbole, there's no reason to assume he's not also just simply calling out the plain truth. Because where there is wealth and power, those who possess it, and they tend to go together, they tend to leverage that wealth and power to further oppress others and to benefit themselves right, to take from others, and when necessary, right, to condemn, to imprison, or simply to kill them if they become too much of an inconvenience. Now stepping back, the crime again is not being rich, even very rich. Being rich isn't wrong. The crime comes when we have to have more money, and thus we amass it to great excess or extort others or live in kind of lavish extravagance, right? When we feed our own desires, the problem is not in having money. The problem is in loving money, Paul says, 1 Timothy 6.10. Because money deceives. Money has a way of warping our own perceptions. It bends us to its will, which is why Paul will warn us in 1 Timothy 6.9 nine. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It's not without reason that Jesus said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's not an accident. And it's why as Christians we're never to be envious of the prosperous. We're never to be envious of the prosperous. Now, imagine if someone were to come up to you after the service and tell you that they were diagnosed with a kind of terminal cancer, you wouldn't envy them. You would grieve with them. But friends, such a love of money, James is helping us see, it's like like a terminal cancer of the soul. And yet, when it comes to that, we're prone to envy it. And we want that disease. It's also why we're told to pray, Proverbs 30, verse 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Friend, when was the last time you prayed that? Yeah, we'll pray, Lord, don't give me poverty. Now the riches, like, yeah, I'll be good with that. No, we don't pray this way. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. All right, James is warning his readers. They need as well, though even if they're poor, to reconsider their own relationship with money today, because there is a judgment that's coming tomorrow. For with nearly every sinful temptation that wealth brings, notice James issues an ominous warning. So, for those tempted to amass excess, verse 3, he says, the corrosion, i.e. the corrosion of your wealth, will be what? It will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Right? The image there is the image of a courtroom. Only now, all their excess, right, their exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C, and all of those things, they're no longer assets. All of those things are now liabilities, And the irony is that the very things they were trusting in, now they're exhibits that testify against them. For those tempted toward extortion, right, the unpaid wages, verse 4, what we read those unpaid wages are crying out against you. And James uses right there the same expression used in Genesis 4.10, where Abel's blood cried out to the Lord from the ground. It's the same image used here. And so too, such extortion of those who are weak and most vulnerable. James is saying that they cry out to the Lord. And for those who've lived in sinful uh, self-extravagance and indulgence, verse 5, he says, You have what? You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Now, one of the things I love most about Arkansas are the beautiful rolling fields and the nice, happy, fat cattle that roam on them. Love that. We drive out to Ponca. I can do without the chicken farms. But the cattle driving out to Ponca, seeing those rolling hills, I'm tempted to envy them. Envy them for those views they get to enjoy up there in the hills are amazing. Envy them because they have a carefree and worry-free life. Envy them because they have all the green grass their stomachs could consume. And it's easy for me to think, oh, wouldn't life be nice like that? Full without a care in the world. And then I have to remember that's all for a reason. They're being prepared for the day of slaughter. That's exactly why. And every hour that they grow fatter, the butcher draws near. And those cattle have no idea. And so James says it is for the rich. It's why they should be weeping and wailing instead of carousing and singing because judgment is coming. And this is what Jesus warned about earlier in the passage that we read from Luke 6. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Right, The rich will be condemned. The sinfully rich. So if you've come this morning, and if you wouldn't identify as a Christian, I wonder if you see yourself at all in these people. Now maybe you haven't extorted and certainly executed others, but maybe you have lived a kind of wanton excess. You've sought the extravagant life and the kind of self-indulgence and self-importance and independence that that life offers. Well, friend, if that's you and if you feel any tinge of a conscience that's pressing and pricking your own heart what I want to say to you is that judgment has not yet come. You are already right now overhearing what will happen, but has not yet happened. And so for you, these can be words of grace, that it's not too late to turn, not too late to to go back to God and to repent, because that's what Jesus came to do. He came to call sinners and call sinners to repent. You know, Jesus had all the wealth and resources heaven had to offer and all of them were at his disposal and yet we read in the gospels that jesus forfeited all of that to become like us and to take on flesh and to live among us and to live in great poverty and then to die for us a sinner's death in order to rise again from the grave for us all this christ did you're hearing it for us Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Oh friend, if you are trusting in your riches this morning, if you think they can deliver you, they cannot. James is helping you see it. Only Christ can. Let go of those things, grab hold of Christ, and live. Otherwise, everything you give yourself to, you're fattening your hearts for the day of slaughter. The rich will be condemned. But second, the righteous, the righteous will be comforted. The righteous will be comforted. How? How are they comforted? Were we seeing that in the text? Well, James notes that their cries, their cries to the Lord are not ignored. Verse 4. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Friends, God is not deaf to the suffering pleas of his people. He hears them. He responds to them. It's very similar to, if you know, uh, in Exodus chapter 2, when God's people were oppressed by a very wealthy king, a wealthy ruler. And what do we read in Exodus 2, 23? We read that God's people, what? They cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Right. So if you're being oppressed, the comfort and the encouragement is that you can cry out to this God that he is not in any way indifferent to your suffering that he will not turn a blind eye to your own oppression. He will one day right every wrong, so go to him, pray to him, plead with him, because his ears are ever attentive to the cries of his people. You know, at our elder retreat this this past weekend, Nick and Cole were telling the story of when they were driving uh, in a car and they were crossing college and they got teed by a guy who ran a light on college, right? He ran off the road and they're... Cole's car was, was demolished. It was totaled. And as they gathered themselves, Cole said, hey, Nick, you doing all right? I'm going to go run and check on the other driver. Call 911. So Nick calls 911. No one picks up. So he calls back again. Doesn't get an answer. He calls a third time. Still doesn't get an answer. Now about 10 minutes later, someone called him back. But three calls and no answer. Friends, God is not like that, right? That was was a 911 emergency. We don't have to have an emergency. And whenever we cry out to God, he hears every word and every plea, however small or large. He listens, he takes note, and not one of your pleas will go unanswered. God, notice, he doesn't just hear them. This God, James says, doesn't just hear them. This God can actually do something about them. For what does James say? He says, the cries have reached whom? The ears of the Lord of hosts. That Hebrew title means just the Lord of armies, as the CSB renders it. James is reminding them and us that God is not some impotent God who sits up there powerlessly in the heavens, just wringing his hands and hoping it all works out okay. Okay. No, he's the one who commands all the hosts of heavens. That's who this God is. He has an army that stands ready to come to the defense of his people. So like a general who's about to charge a field, right, the Lord's arm is raised, and his army is assembled, eager and ready to take the field of battle. If you've seen images of, of horses rearing, anxious and ready to charge, and yet the Lord is staying them. The order to charge is on his lips, but he hasn't yet uttered it. It's almost time and it's the last days, but it's not the last day. And my Christian friends, that image is meant to encourage us that we have this Lord, the Lord of armies, that God will come to the defense of his people and he will finally one day rescue us from all the evils of this world. God's pending judgment is meant to be a source of comfort. But you know what, you and, you and me, you and I rather, we are so embarrassed often by this talk of judgment. We often shirk back from teaching of judgment so a friend of mine tells a story of being on a, a short-term missions trip with some other Americans, uh, and they were in Mexico, and they were in parts of rural Mexico trying to help a local church there and its ministry, and in one of the evenings, the, the leader of that church, uh, the pastor, said to the American missionary, he said, hey, would, um, would you be willing to come? Would you like to come watch a movie with us? We're going to watch a movie together. thought it might be encouragement if you were to come. And they said, oh, what what are you going to watch? And then the guy described it. And it was one of these sort of 1980s movies about hell and fire and judgment. And the American students were like, oh, let's go back and let's see if any of us brought something else. Did any of us bring anything else we could watch other than that? Something that might be a little more encouraging, a little more uplifting, not quite so heavy. And so they looked, but to their embarrassment, they didn't have anything And so they came back and they said, hey, what if we don't watch a movie? What if we just play a game together? And the pastor sort of looked at them, and the pastor could tell. They were embarrassed. They didn't want to watch this film. And he basically looked at them and said, listen, what is a cause of embarrassment for you is a source of great encouragement to us. You're embarrassed about God's judgment because you've never truly suffered at the hands of the wicked. You've actually never experienced great injustice. Because if you had, you would realize that the fact that God will one day come to judge is the only hope you can finally hold on to. And in that moment, the Americans realized maybe something was missing in their own theology. And maybe something was missing in their own experience. Friends, James is reminding us the wicked may have the last word in this life, but they won't have the last word in the next. It's why the sermon title says we're to live prospectively. And some of you may be wondering, like, what is Brad talking about? It just means live with an eye toward the future. We're to live with an eye toward the future. For the day will come where we will face a judge, and this judge, again, cannot be bribed and he can't be bought off. And on that day, in his courtroom, he will judge rightly and justly and fairly, and the wicked will be weighed and found wanting. And I think that's why James ended in verse 6 with the note of the righteous one who does not resist. And that's in part, no doubt, because the righteous ones among them didn't have much of a means to resist. The deck was stacked against them. But that statement also, I think, served for them as an encouragement to endure. God's hand is raised, right? His army is poised. The command is on his lips. The day is coming, so be patient. Isaiah forty ten. God says, "'Find comfort, O my people, "'for behold, the Lord God comes with might, "'and his arm rules for him. "'Behold, his reward is with him, "'and his recompense, his judgment before him, "'and he will tend his flock like a shepherd, "'and he will gather the lambs in his arms.'" he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young and friends are we not truly reminded finally of the of the truly righteous one right of the Lord Jesus Christ himself who was remember what who was sold out for money Jesus was sold out for silver 30 pieces of silver and yet like a lamb Jesus was what like a lamb he was led to the slaughter Not the wicked. He went to that place of slaughter for them. And yet we read Jesus did not open his mouth. He did not resist them. Jesus embodied what it meant to entrust his soul to his faithful father. And so we walk the same path worn by Christ. Hebrews 9.28 So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time to what? To save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So friends, wait expectantly as you live prospectively. We're living in the last days. And James knows the temptation to be envious of the prosperous. And we think the greatest problems... In our lives, can be problems that will be solved with more money. But James is reminding us, friends, that is fleeting. And money tends to create as many problems in our lives as it solves. It's why Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6 that we're not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We're to what? We're to, notice, do good. To be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future, so that we may take hold of that which is truly life. So friend, where are you laying up treasure today? Can it deliver you tomorrow? Let's pray.